It's always an overwhelming fantasy to simply start reading the speech that has been provided for me. When it's Welcome to Rare Book School. We will be having similar lectures in the Mondays of the last two weeks in July, and then again when Albert Derrillet is in residence in October. And if you don't mind the commute, in Baltimore and in New York City in August and October as well. Our lecture this evening is the curator of collections at Rare Book School, Barbara Heritage, who is the co-curator of the exhibition currently enjoying a splendid run in the dome room of the Rotunda on the many manifestations of Jane Eyre, Eyre's Eyre's. And Barbara is speaking to the exhibition tonight. It's a great pleasure to welcome her formally to this podium. Disappeared for a while. <laughs> um, I'm wearing a pilgrim dress tonight um, in honor of. Um, thank you, Terry. Thanks. In honor of all of the bizarre Janes that have emerged since the book was published in 1847, and I thought this old-fashioned pointer uh, would give me the courage to give you a speech tonight. Um, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge um, how much I'm indebted to the Rare Book School faculty and to my teachers here at UVA. Um, Karen Chase is sitting in the front row, and um, she has been an inspiration since I met her years and years ago as an undergrad at UVA. Uh, Terry and John introduced me to the collection, and it would not have been possible without them. And as you'll see when I read this to you, um, I've had help translating some of the adaptations and translation, the foreign language editions, uh, from lots of different people, including Aaron Blake, who is on the RBS faculty and teaching this week. Um, and Carson Clark was sitting over there. <clears throat> there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering indeed in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning. But since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie, the nurse, and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza, John, and Georgiana Reed. Thus begins the story of Jane Eyre. And already we, Charlotte Bronte's readers, are imagining the kind of dreary afternoon that would be perfectly suited to reading. We are seduced into delving further into her tale as we, perhaps, snuggle under a blanket or rest in a chair and turn the pages of one of the greatest literary masterpieces of the 19th century. But don't get too comfortable in your seats. For not every Jane Eyre begins this way. The story that I unfold for you tonight is not that of little Jane the orphan, the student, the governess, not the story 
of Rochester's beloved nun and quasi-fairy, nor the tale of Jane Eyre, who disguises herself as Jane Elliot. Not the specific events that surround the life of Jane Eyre, the cousin, the wife, the mother, the narrator. Rather, I relate the history of Jane Eyre, the novel, the play, the translation, the adaptation, the grammar school reader, the film, the comic book, the study guide, the critical edition, the libretto, the children's book. You should know, by the way, that the list does not end there. There are glass patterns, plates, wedding invitations, blouses, journals, thimbles, earrings, bracelets, flowers, figurines, matchboxes, and many more objects and ephemeral odds and ends that have been assigned the name Jane Eyre for one reason or another. Objects and reasons with which I shall not concern myself tonight as I have limited this discussion to printed and physical materials directly related to the first line of the novel. Before commencing, it is but fair to warn you that the story will sound somewhat hackneyed in your ears, but stale details often regain a degree of freshness when they pass through new lips. Note that these two are lines from Jane Eyre. How easily I adapt this sentence to my own purpose. Listen again. Stale details often regain a degree of freshness when they pass through new lips. The context of this passage is one that parallels my own purpose tonight. The line is part of a speech delivered by St. John Rivers in the last third of the novel when he summarizes the details of Jane's life to her, and thus adopting the role of a narrator and providing a biographical sketch of our heroine at the same time. St. John cleverly reveals that he knows Jane's true identity as Jane Eyre and no longer believes her to be Jane Elliot, the pseudonym that Jane adopts directly after fleeing from Thornfield Hall when the horrifying truth of Rochester's secret is exposed. This little meta-narrative reveals that storytelling, particularly the retelling of a familiar story in a slightly different context, can become a powerful tool for delivering sensitive messages that might otherwise be ignored or refused. Tonight, I will be talking about the story of Jane Eyre the book's various appropriations and retellings, and I shall be exploring the significance of these projects in relationship to one another. I have selected the first line of the text as an entry point for comparing reprintings and retellings of the 1847 first edition with its other subsequent printings and half-lives. The line, there was no possibility of taking a walk that day, shall be our window into the past of not Jane Eyre the character, but into the past, the history, of Jane Eyre the text. In isolating the differences among the various transmissions of this line, as well as the cover art, title pages, and illustrations that precede it, I will move from 1847 to the common day, 2006, from paper to film. And like St. John Rivers, I too hope to entice you to listen not for simple content, but for the freshness of each delivery as it is rendered anew. Before taking a look at the first edition of Jane Eyre, I want to draw your attention to two images. First, an image inspired by Jane Eyre's opening line, Sophie Anderson's 19th century oil painting, No Walk Today, is contemporary with Charlotte Bronte's novel. 
However, it represents a figure who in no way resembles the character Charlotte Bronte describes in her novel. Sophie Anderson's little girl, pressed against the window, solemnly regards the bleak weather with regret. This is in contrast to Jane, who notes, though the weather is poor for walking, she is glad of it, as she prefers secluded reading to outdoor exercise. Moreover, Sophie Anderson's little girl is dressed in costly clothes. She is beautiful to look at, her pink cheeks and curls resembling Jane's lovely cousin Georgiana far more than our heroine, who is famous for her plain looks. The next image is from the frontispiece of a book published around 1950, roughly 100 years after Jane Eyre was first printed. For anyone hoping to find illustrations faithful to the book in its times, this image is just as ridiculous as Sophie Anderson's painting. These characters might have stepped out of a 1930s screwball comedy. This Jane, with her lovely blonde hair and pretty profile, is clearly a very desirable servant. If we don't get it, we can refer to a very handsome and slick Mr. Rochester, whose smirk suggests that he's interested in something more than Jane's teaching abilities. Moreover, we can nitpick his white tie costume, which comes across as being a far cry from Victorian dress. Compare his getup to that of the formally attired men in Demoy's 1897 Dancing Men or Crookshank's 1836 Public Dinners, and we might conclude that the tails on our men are a bit too long, the cut on the jacket too high, and the handkerchief absurd. I show you these two images in order to assert two larger points. The first being that if one wants to examine material related to Jane Eyre by simply seeking elements faithful to the novel, no matter whether studying 19th or 20th century material, one can easily spend one's entire time discovering delightful and atrocious inconsistencies. The second point builds off of this concept of faithfulness to the text and has to do with one's cultural consumption of the story of Jane Eyre. If one were to pick up this 1950s copy of Jane Eyre as a child without ever having encountered the story of Jane Eyre in any form, this frontispiece would strongly impact one's interpretation of the text. The image tantalizes the reader with an image of a man and of a woman. Who are they? How do they relate to the small, unattractive little girl in the first pages of the book? Does she remain an ugly duckling? Or is she just being modest when she paints us the portrait of a governess disconnected, poor, and plain? To most, the book Jane Eyre is not the 1847 three-decker novel, but rather the story as they first encounter it, whether it be in the form of a Norton critical edition or a comic book. Furthermore, books teach you how to read them. An illustration, a typeface, a colored paper, these elements provide cues to the reader and condition the reader to respond to the text in certain ways. While these particular design choices in themselves seem meaningless, the combination of all of these elements inevitably affects one's reception of the text. Such productions are not necessarily faithful or unfaithful. They are the product of their publisher and of their times. One may view the constant changes of the text as an ongoing series of responses and reactions that can be traced and compared in a multitude of ways to current technology, to political events, to trends in fashion, to popular film, and so on. Rather than disparage these later Janes in relation to the original, my goal is to listen to what each individual production is saying. What is its project? What is its purpose? 
what does this production say about its time? Air was first published by Smith Elder and Company of London. It was issued in October of 1847 in three hardbound volumes which were covered in dark claret-colored cloth with blind-stemmed borders on the upper and lower boards and the title gilt on the spine, which was also decorated with borders and blind. The book was printed on wove paper without watermark, and it was unillustrated. The book originally sold for a pound, 11 shillings, and six pence, an amount that was roughly equivalent to a week's wages for a skilled laborer. Like most three-decker novels, it was primarily purchased by circulating libraries, whose annual subscription rate was generally a pound, an amount slightly less than the cost of a three-decker novel. Like other title pages in this period, ours is heavily punctuated. Notice that there is a period after the title Jane Eyre, after the subtitle, an autobiography, after the author's name, her or Bell, after both lines of the volume number information, after the publisher's information, and after the year. Notice also that the letting between these lines is generous. The page is an ocean of space upon which the punctuated information simply floats. <clears throat> the name Currabelle is ambiguous. It could belong either to a man or a woman. That the story is presented as an autobiography that is edited is consonant with the popular conventions of the time. No experienced reader of the novel would have literally believed the book to be a factual account. And yet, there is an overwhelming response to the book's voice that correlates to this idea of autobiography. Immediately after it was first published, the book was praised for its natural tone, its unconscious and forced manner, its ring of truth, and genuine nature. One critic writing for Fraser's magazine insisted, it is an autobiography not perhaps in the naked facts and the circumstances, but in the actual suffering and experience. Turning to the first page of chapter one, the text speaks for itself. It leaps off the page without any preface or introduction. The sentences are easy to read, again, with heavy letting between the lines and with generous margins. The text is competently set, but does not call attention to itself. It is perhaps as plain as our heroine. The book's feel and look changed significantly when the book was redesigned in 1855 from a three-volume edition to a one-volume edition. Examined for a moment, this 1858 edition acquired on eBay in 2005 and owned by the Rare Book School. This single hardbound volume is covered in bright orange cloth upon which is printed the book's title page information. The volume, when it was originally published, cost half a crown or two and a half shillings, significantly less than the guinea and half price of the original three-decker. Indeed, private individuals could afford to buy this book, whereas most would have only borrowed the book from a circulating library. Note that the punctuation on the title page is slightly different. A colon follows the title Jane Eyre instead of the period appearing in the first edition. Notice that the text is by Kerber Bell and not edited by Kerber Bell a change that originally appeared in the second edition of the text. In addition, the title page lists Bronte's other works, Shirley, Villette, and The Professor. Following this appears Bronte's dedication to Thackeray, as well as the prefaces to the second and third editions of the novel. 
When we examine page one of chapter one, we finally see the full effects of the cheaper production. The margins are far smaller, measuring half an inch, and the spacing is far less generous. As a result, the 1858 edition squeezes more than twice as much text on the page as the first edition, and the overall read is certainly not as pleasing on the eye as that of the original production. It gets worse, though. Take a look at this 1879 Harper and Brothers Franklin Square Library edition, issued in plain wraps in a stab-stitched binding and published in three columns, this production sold for only 15 cents, which would be roughly equivalent to the cost of a cheap mass-market paperback or an expensive magazine today. Notice that by now the subtitle an autobiography has been replaced by simply a novel. The dedication to Thackeray is retained, as well as the preface to the second edition, but we do not have anywhere the preface to the third edition. The text, as you can see, is somewhat uncomfortable to read in the three-column format, a far cry from those lovely white zones of space in the first edition. But then again, try reading a three-decker novel on a train. This copy could have been transported anywhere, and it was most likely treated like other periodicals of the time. It could be sent through the mail at a sharply reduced rate for newspapers and such like, and like a newspaper or magazine, it would not have been uncommon for someone to have discarded this publication after reading it. Meanwhile, the first illustrated edition of Jane Eyre was published in October of 1872. It appeared along with the other novels of the Bronte sisters and contained wood engravings based on the drawings of Edmund Morrison Wimperus. These pictures were celebrated in the book's advertisement to the illustrated edition, which states, the descriptions in Jane Eyre and the other fictions by Charlotte Bronte and her sisters being mostly of actual places, the publishers considered that views would form the most suitable illustrations of the library edition of the novels. They are indebted for a clue to the real names of the most interesting scenes to a friend of the Mrs. Bronte. One can already see that, despite the fact that the term autobiography has been dropped from the book's title, the fascination with the relationship between the author's life and her novels has not decreased. And this was not simply a 19th century preoccupation. One can still find numerous publications continuing to this day which try to map out the relationship between the novel settings and characters to actual people in Charlotte Bronte's life. These projects never cease to amaze me. With almost acrobatic virtuosity, images, dates, and stories are supplied so that one can follow Bronte's life along with Jane's. The frontispiece and title vignette that you see before you are, sadly, quite poor specimens from an 1882 edition owned by RBS. They were fresh in their day, though. <clears throat> At the same time, they would have seemed a bit quaint to their audience. Although these are wood engravings, the formal and restrained look of these views convey the earlier sensibility of steel engraving. Their nostalgia springs from the project of bringing the lives and works of the Bronte sisters to the public in a complete seven-volume set. It is as if the publishers were very much aware that they were presenting history and fiction simultaneously. Notice that the title page for the edition features Charlotte Bronte's name in prominent capitals. That the set is The Life and Works of Charlotte Bronte and Her Sisters. Charlotte Bronte was the star of this project, especially considering that Mrs. Elizabeth Gaskell's famous 1857 biography of Charlotte Bronte was included in the set. Moving to the first page of chapter one, at first glance, we might come to the conclusion that, aside 
from the new pictures, not much has changed since 1852 in the one-volume edition. However, the illustrated edition, edition is a physically larger production. The book measures roughly eight inches tall by five and a half inches wide, where the 1852 edition is seven inches tall and four and a quarter inches wide. This, that, with the, yeah. <laughs> this was at least in part to accommodate the wood engraved illustrations within. As a result, the line length of the illustrated edition is longer than the earlier one volume edition by half an inch, and the text block is a quarter of an inch taller than the 1852 edition. The margins are also quite a bit wider in the illustrated edition. Remember that the early one volume edition was quite cheap. This illustrated set was certainly more costly than its one volume predecessor. One might take this a step further and argue that this illustrated edition is the most expensive production of Jane Eyre to follow the original three-decker. The distinction being that, at the time, one would likely have displayed this set in one's personal library, whereas the three-decker would have been commonly owned by circulating libraries. We begin to witness the move from cheap, affordable editions of the book to more elaborate and yet still reasonably affordable productions, a move from the circulating library and from cheap, disposable literature to personal libraries that individuals could build and collect at moderate expense. This is not to say that cheap editions were no longer available. In fact, they became more plentiful. In 1889, according to the rules established by the Copyright Act of 1842, the copyright on Jane Eyre was lifted, and the book became part of the public domain. This 1891, publication of Jane Eyre was number three in W.H. White and Company's Manchester Library series. These books were originally issued in yellow wrappers and stapled in glued bindings. However, in many cases, numbers were rebound with other numbers from the series into single hardbound volumes. RBS owns two such copies, one containing Vanity Fair, Jane Eyre, and Ivanhoe, and the copy you see here, containing Vanity Fair, Jane Eyre, and Sir Walter Scott's A Legend of Montrose. As these volumes are quite fragile, I chose to take an image of the volume that was already significantly damaged. The, dim the benefit of this is that you can easily see the staples that hold the individual numbers together. Also, you can see just how much wear and tear these soft-bound editions and others like them suffered before they were bound together in a more protected binding. Vanity Fair and Jane Eyre are fitting neighbors, as Bronte dedicated the second edition of her novel to Thackeray. But their proximity in the Manchester Library series also helps one realize that Jane Eyre was finding its place among other peers, peers that likewise became established classics, the bedrock of the literary canon to emerge later on in the 20th century. Note that this text is illustrated with wood engravings and that it is published in two columns. In a sense, this is the best of both worlds, a small, cheap publication that also contains pictures. However, the two-column format isn't the most comfortable format to read, and in terms of line length, it is surprisingly close to our earlier three-column Franklin Library edition. Notice how the line breaks are very much the same. Being only a couple of words longer here and there than the three-column format. Again, these volumes were issued soon after Jane Eyre went out of copyright in 1889, which helps explain the book's exceptionally inexpensive price of three pence. Finally, we turn to the Haworth edition of 1899. This seven-volume set 
can be viewed as an improved version of the earlier 1872 life and works of Charlotte Bronte and her sisters. While the set includes Gaskell's bibliography, notice that this, excuse me, biography, notice that this title, Life and Works of the Sisters Bronte, shifts the focus from Charlotte Bronte to all three sisters, Emily, Anne, and Charlotte. It was around this time that Wuthering Heights, which had not been as popular as Jane Eyre earlier in the 19th century, was becoming more widely recognized as an important masterpiece in its own right. We've come a long way since 1847. With the Haworth edition, we have a reproduction of George Richmond's 1850 portrait of Charlotte Bronte. We have a facsimile of the title page of the first edition. We have a 22-page scholarly introduction by Mary A. Ward, a.k.a. Mrs. Humphrey Ward, and in the Gaskell volume, notes by Clement Shorter. Plus, we have eight photogravure illustrations, views of places described in the work, reproduced from photographs taken by Mr. W.R. Bland. Here again, there is a real attempt to connect Charlotte Bronte's life experience with the fiction in Jane Eyre. While the earlier illustrated edition hints at these connections, the Haworth edition makes them explicit by providing a list of illustrations that links real English properties with the fictional place names in the novel. For example, Stone Gap is understood to be Gateshead Hall, the Riddings is realized as Thornfield Hall, and so on. Oddly enough, while the introductory material includes the preface to the second edition, it omits Bronte's preface to the third edition, in which, as Currabelle, she denies authorship of other books attributed to her name. The book is very good in terms of production values. The margins are wide, the paper is substantial and well-made, the typeface is clear, and the book, on the whole, is a pleasure to read. By the time we arrive at the first page of the novel, we are prepared to receive it as a significant text of literary merit. We are prepared to compare the life of the author with that of her heroine. And as we are provided a facsimile of the original title page, we are prepared to consciously consider the fact that we are removed from the text as it was originally received and published. We have arrived at an important point one that will launch Bronte from popular circles into scholarly ones. For there is an important shift to come in the early 20th century as novels slowly become books to be studied in the classroom and university and not simply read for pleasure in one's spare time. So much for our look at the 19th century straight James, as I like to call them. You might have noticed that so far the text itself has remained much the same. But didn't I promise that every Jane Eyre didn't begin the same way? In a sense, these books that we have reviewed have all started differently. Now we shall take our study a step further and explore some quite literal translations and transformations. Rare Book School owns copies of Jane Eyre that have been translated and or adapted into French, German, Greek, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Norwegian, Portuguese, Russian, Turkish, Spanish, Ukrainian, and even Esperanto. The book has been translated into other languages as well, but a comprehensive bibliography on this subject does not yet exist. It is certain that the book has been widely translated ever since it was first published, and it continues to be widely translated throughout the world. We shall examine these translations chronologically, beginning with the earliest specimen in the RBS collection, an 1883 edition published by Hachette. According to J.A. Symington's bibliography, the first French translation of Jane Eyre was made in 1854 
by Madame La Bazet Souveste and issued in two 16 mo volumes. Our 1883 edition, two volumes, also translated by Madame Souveste, is covered in bright orange but very delicate paper wraps, and it is surprising that this piece survived in such lovely condition. Like the orange 1852 hardbound single volume we saw earlier, the title page information is printed on the cover. And like the earlier versions of the text, this production is quite plain, being unillustrated and without significant introductory material. Note that the title is Jane Eyre, ou la mémoire d'une institutrice, or in English, Jane Eyre, or the memoirs of an instructress. As you will see, many of the translations and adaptations add subtitles foreign to the English text. As far as I can tell, the French are quite fond of emphasizing the governess aspect of the story, as variants of this subtitle appear in many of the titles of French editions. As I read the first paragraph to you, translated from French back into English by RBS faculty member Aaron Blake, you might want to follow along on your facsimile of the 1847 Smith Elder edition. Okay, here it goes. It was impossible to go for a walk that day. In the morning, we wandered for an hour in the leafless woods. But after dinner, when there was nobody, Mrs. Reed ate promptly. The icy winter wind brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that we couldn't hope of any outing. Notice that there was no possibility has been translated to it was impossible. And we had been wandering, changes to we wandered, these alterations, while they seem only slight modifications, greatly alter the tone of the book's beginning lines. The French translation, with its imperfect verbs, is rather clipped and matter-of-fact, whereas the syntax of the original, written in the imperfect, the French is in the perfect, written in the imperfect and pluperfect, conveys a real sense of wandering helplessness stretched over a lengthy period of time. That's why, in the original translation, the line, I was glad of it, comes as such a surprise. Out of an oppressive atmosphere, linguistically and figurally, pops this assertive and very straightforward, I. Stylistically, it's a brilliant moment that is extremely hard to capture in a translation. Other translations similarly fail to capture the subtle texture of Bronte's language. We won't continue on this point, as I need only make it once, but keep it in mind as we move from book to book. Jane Eyre was first translated in German, and having examined bibliographies and bookseller catalogs, it seems that German is the most popular foreign language for the book. The first German edition was published in 1848, just months after the first edition was issued, and the first German translation was titled Johanna Eyre. Numerous other editions followed, intended for children and adults alike. Rare Book School owns two fabulous young adult translations of the novel. The first, published around 1890, is a lovely book bound in cream cloth with a double paper onlay on the cover, printed in color via lithography. The cover illustration is of a simply dressed yet elegant and attractive Jane walking a dell and pilot through one of Thornfield's parks. The book also contains numerous lithograph illustrations very much like the frontispiece you see here, which emphasize the book's romance. Notice the title, Jane Eyre, The Visa von Lowood, or The Orphan of Lowood. My research in this area has led me to conclude that Germans tend to emphasize the orphan story of the book. If we study the title page carefully, we learn that this production was specifically intended 
for um, mature female youth. Translated by Karsten Clark, the first chapter reads, it was impossible to take our accustomed walk that day. We had walked this morning for an hour through the leafless wilderness, but since lunch, Mrs. Reed ate a timely lunch when she had no company. The cold winter wind was bringing along such dark clouds and such a penetrating rain that another outing was not to be thought of. Compare this to a German edition published roughly 25 years later. This book is also a Berlin imprint and is intended for young adults. Like its predecessor, it is subtitled The Weise von Lowood. The illustrations and translation, however, are entirely different. The cover contains a paper onlay printed in four-color half-tone relief, depicting a rather plain and humbly attired young girl. The frontispiece, also four-color half-tone relief, depicts Jane's punishment at Lowood, and like the cover illustration, is more consonant with the idea of orphanhood than the previous edition intended specifically for young ladies. Translated again by Karsten Clark, the first page of this edition reads, the cold winter wind had brought along such dark clouds and such a penetrating rain that it was impossible to take a walk on this day. Eliza, John, and Georgina had gathered themselves around their mama in the living room. She lay on a sofa near the chimney, and surrounded by her loved ones, who at that moment happened either to be crying or fighting each other, she looked completely happy. The texts of these two books are strikingly different. <laughs> First, notice that these, this later version has titled chapters. For example, chapter one is titled In the House of the Aunt at Gateshead Hall, while the earlier edition retains the simple numbers native to the text. But more importantly, where in our later edition has gone Jane's I was glad of it? This edition seems to focus immediately on the plot related to Jane's cousins and entirely ignores the contrast between the bleak weather and Jane's independent spirit. One realizes immediately that we are dealing with a translation adaptation as opposed to a simple translation. The fact that the later edition is geared towards children, while the earlier volume is pushed towards mature female youth, explains in part why these texts are geared for audiences of different ages, sophistication, and taste. Hmm. Moving on, let's take a look at the scarce 1931 Esperanto edition. Esperanto, for those unfamiliar with the term, is the name of a constructed international language that was developed in the late 19th century by Ludovic Lazarus Zamenhof. It is estimated that between 100,000 and 2 million people read and speak the language. The fact that the language has never really taken off makes this find so exciting. Let's puzzle for a moment over the first line. I have not yet found a native speaker of Esperanto to translate this for me. If any of you know of one, please send my name to the person. Moving on, moving on. Here are two familiar territories, the Spanish language and Orson Welles, yay. As many of you probably know, Robert Stevenson's 1944 film starring Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine was a huge national and international success. This was largely because of the overwhelming amount of money poured into advertising this film. As a result, there are many photo play editions of the book still available in print. And you can easily find a copy of your own on eBay for a reasonable price, I assure you, if you've fallen in love with these covers that you see before you. These two books are different issues of the same edition printed in Barcelona. 
one with a red and black wrap, paper wrapper, and the other a hardback and a multicolored dust jacket. Wells aficionados will quickly note that the beard is added for the Spanish edition, in that Wells, in fact, did not wear a full beard in the film. But more importantly, note that the, the differences in the title, Jane Eyre on the left and Alma Rebelde, or Rebellious Soul, on the right. And again, we can assume that the Spanish like Rebellious Soul. Taking a look at the text, which is identical within both, you might have to turn your heads a bit. No, my images aren't crooked. This is actually how the text appears on the page. A very ill-printing job indeed. We will take a closer look at the translation a bit later. Our 1970 Turkish children's edition is only a slightly better specimen in terms of printing than the Barcelona production. Bound in colorful wraps and heavily illustrated with simple drawings, it's a fun but cheap adaptation of our classic. Notice that the printing is rather crooked and the quality of the paper absolutely deplorable. Thanks to Professor Nihat Goltuken, the father of a friend, for supplying the following translation of the first page. My name is Jane Eyre. My father was a poor pastor. Both died when I was a little baby. I was left all by myself without friends and money. Uncle Reed, my mother's brother, took me in. My uncle was living with his wife and three children in a manor called Gateshead. He was a good person. If he had not died soon after he took me in, no doubt he was going to take good care of me. My aunt and my cousins were treating me very badly, especially John, the oldest one. As you can see here, we have degenerated into an all-out adaptation of the novel. The sentences are short, easy, and based entirely on the action of the plot, which is the book's main, main focus. Now, picking up the pace a bit, here's a Korean Jane Eyre, which you should recognize from my lecture poster. This production contains both Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, and is, according to a close friend of mine, printed in the Chinese style, and so that the sentences in Korean read vertically rather than horizontally. This publishing trend ended towards the late 1970s. Chris Lee, a scholar of comparative literature and the friend I mentioned, was also kind enough to provide me with a translation of the first line. The weather was not appropriate for taking a walk that day. This is certainly an interesting spin on our sentence. The weather has become the main subject of the sentence construction, and the appropriateness of taking a walk is called into question. Now we have a Pacho de Genere, a Portuguese translation whose title translates to the passion of Genere. The temptress on the cover of this 1987 hardbound volume alerts us that the edition is probably not a children's adaptation. Opening to the first page, we find a fairly literal translation. It was impossible to take a walk that day. Last but not least, here's a 1997 McDougal Latell reader designed for grammar school students studying English as a second language. The book contains a full translation of Jane Eyre, and it also includes, among other works, Shakespeare's sonnet 141, In faith, I do not love thee with mine eyes, for they, in thee, a thousand errors note, Catherine Mansfield's short story, The Little Governess, and Vladimir Nabokov's Signs and Symbols, a story about an elderly couple who visit their son in an asylum. One can see just by these three examples how the editors of this reader address various themes in Jane Eyre as they occur in other recognized literary works. I find Nabokov the most intriguing of these three in its attempt to address 
the Bertha question. And again, just to show that the two translations are hardly ever the same, I have positioned the translation from our 1997 Spanish reader next to the 1945 Barcelona translation for comparison. Just listen to the differences in the first lines. <clears throat> Aquel día no fue posible salir de paseo. Versus, iba a ser posible poder salir a pasear de nuevo aquel día. Listen again to the 1945 translation's three infinitives in a row. Poder, salir, a pasear. To be able to go out, to take a walk. How different from the 1997 salir, to go out. Having acquainted you with a general understanding of the novel's various 19th century formats and its foreign language translations and adaptations, I hope to quickly proceed now through some notable trends having to do with play adaptations, grade school readers, comics, criticism, film, children's adaptations, and literary spinoffs. Let's take a look at the plays. The main concern of these is a question of beginnings. How does one squeeze a novel into a play? John Brum's 1855 play skips the opening sequence at Gateshead entirely and starts at Lowood. Many playwrights, such as Jane Kendall, choose to simply skip both Gateshead and Lowood entirely and simply begin the narrative at Thornfield Hall. An aside, I should mention that comic books also bring up the same difficulty. For example, the 1950s thriller comics edition of Jane Eyre also um, begins directly at Thornfield Hall. Some playwrights, however, take overt artistic license, not just with the narrative sequence of events, but with the text itself. Polly Teal's 1998 play adaptation starts at Gateshead and moves forward, but with a bold interpretation of the novel's meaning. Giving literal form to Jane's psychological quest for identity, Teal splits the character of Jane into two people, Bertha, who expresses all the passion of unrestricted libido, and Jane, who censors Bertha despite the secret pleasure she takes in Bertha's perversity. To make this relationship between the two actresses playing Jane and Bertha more pronounced, Teal offers suggestions for doubling other characters in the play so that the same actor plays Rochester and John Reed, Mrs. Reed and Mrs. Fairfax, etc. She also provides a detailed analysis of her decision to adapt the play this way, providing quotes from Bronte and other materials that help inform her reader of the rationale behind her specific choices. To give you a taste of the teal flavor, I've provided an, an excerpt from the first page. Jane speaks. The vast sweep of the Arctic zone lies buried under the frost and snow. These forsaken regions of dreary space are seldom seen by human eyes. The extreme cold and biting wind makes uninhabitable this frozen waste. And Bertha replies, the tropical clime of the West Indies has been described as a paradise on earth. And so the two are contrasted. David Moloff, who wrote the libretto for Michael Berkeley's 2000 opera of Jane Eyre, similarly invokes a rather symbolic and poetic atmosphere. His opening lines read, silence, quietness, some of us choose when storms rock the air and the wind out on the moor shakes the wainscot, rattles the pane, a place of the still heart, out of the, eyes world, out of the world's eye and the sky's perpetual knocking. The fact that silence is invoked through sound here makes the argument somewhat ironic and compelling. Informing these visual and aural interpretations of Jane Eyre, 
was a series of films stretching back into the early 20th century. The first film of Jane Eyre was a silent Italian film made in 1909. Movies of Jane Eyre continued to be made almost every year following that following decade. According to Patsy Stoneman's research, in the year 1915, seven separate films were made of the book. An overwhelming figure. What you see before you is a poster of Virginia Bruce starring as Jane in the 1934 Hollywood movie of Jane Eyre. As you can imagine, even then books and movies made strange bedfellows. For example, take a look at the next image, which is a still taken from the 1944 Robert Stevenson film of Jane Eyre starring Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine. The movie opens with a physical book which is titled Jane Eyre. The casting credits of the movie are presented as text on pages that are turned. Fontaine's narration begins with the movie book's first chapter. As you can see, Aldous Huxley's screenplay is very different from the 1847 edition. My name is Jane Eyre. I was born in 1820, a harsh time of change in England. Money and position seemed all that mattered. Charity was a cold and disagreeable word. Religion, too, often wore a mask of bigotry and cruelty, etc., etc. Yes, thank you, Aldous Huxley. It's not surprising that Saturday Night Live in 2004 spoofed this film convention by creating their own book, also unfaithful to the 1847 edition. Well, and also unfaithful to Jane. In the skit, Rochester is constantly dashing up to fix the squirrel problem in the attic and to rendezvous with his sexy wife. Look close and you will read Bertha's exclamation. Ooh, yeah, all right, that'll work. It was precisely this kind of adaptation that got under the skin of 1940s and 1950s educators. This 1955 class lo- classroom reader edited by Lou Bunce makes much of the recent film versions of the day. In his message to teachers, he writes that, while movies about classic books pique the interest of many young people who read the classics after seeing the movies, Often the books themselves are too difficult for students to read. Quote, it is the purpose of adaptations like this one of Jane Eyre to make such books appealing by shortening them and by simplifying the vocabulary, while at the same time omitting no characters or, or important events and altering the plot in no respect. One has to wonder what Bunce's rationale was for changing day to afternoon. But then again, Bunce reveals in his introduction more of a concern for plot than style. Of course, one can become overly obsessed with style. John Mullum Dimbleby's 1911 Key to the Bronte Works is a brilliant failure in this sense. <laughs> Studying Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre line by line, Mullum Dimbleby is convinced that Charlotte Bronte is in fact the author of both novels. And so he directly compares the first line of Jane Eyre with the following line from Wuthering Heights. All day had been flooded with rain. We could not go to church. And Malam Dembleby concludes that, quote, recognizable, that a recognizable idiosyncrasy of Charlotte Bronte's genius is the vivid minuteness with which she paints and records apparently unimportant details and happenings connected with her early childhood. Evidence indeed. Here's yet another academic eccentricity. The Henderson Study System's complete text of Jane Eyre, pre-underlined throughout in different colors to systematically interpret various themes throughout the novel. Blue signifies weather, green signifies snobbery, gray signifies deceit, and morons, etc. Furthermore, there are pre-made sticker tabs, I kid you not, that correspond to the color-coded margins of the text, 
which one is encouraged to apply to the book as one reads along. Common traits of the children's adaptations include books like this 1984 children's adaptation. Note that although it contains the exact first line, the rest of the text has been, well, fooled with a bit. Like there's a chapter on every page. The 1994 Hooked on Phonics is driving blind, literally. Obviously, these publishers knew something about Rochester's accident on the ice that we didn't. You see, it was because he was riding his horse blindfolded. And now I'm just going to basically um, degenerate into a talk about the following images that Carsten pops up on the screen. This is a Hooked on Phonics interior, and you notice there's a very pretty Jane and a very unattractive Mrs. Reed. And the order of this um, presentation is quite interesting. You have Jane reading here in the window seat, where we pretty much begin in the book. And they've reconstructed the order to, to make it more presentable to young readers. This is the Livewire Graphics Edition. And there's nothing particularly interesting about it except for the illustrations, which are on the next page. We have all the characters introduced at the beginning, and then Jane has a very unhappy life, living with her aunt and cousins. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. I was glad. I never liked long walks. Next. This is a large version, and a quite austere drawing of Jane and her unhappy life. This is a very interesting um, little children's reader. This is um, Zella Clark from the 1983 BBC movie that starred Zella Clark and Timothy Dalton. And it is perhaps the most simple translation, excuse me, adaptation of Jane Eyre. We have literally, it was winter. The weather was very cold and it was raining. We could not go outside. I was glad. I never liked walks with my cousins, John, Eliza, and Georgiana Reed. I was not a strong child. I always got tired before they did, and then they laughed at me. But, <laughs> well, and now we've completely devolved into silliness. There is a whole hidden supply of literary spin-offs on Jane Eyre. This is Disciplining Jane by Jane Eyre, believe it or not. Um, this was published by Blue Moon Books in 2001, and there are lots of other uh, versions of Disciplining Jane. Um, an English Education is one. It has a very complicated history, and I could probably give a 20-minute lecture on that itself, but I'm not going to, thank God. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that our usual afternoon exercise was out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart humbled to the region of my high patent leather boots <laughs> by the comfortable chidings of Bessie, the nurse, and my skin already tingling to anticipation of attentions to my nether person on the part of Abbott, my lady's maid, who seldom failed to find some excuse to induce what she called a more sociable and childlike disposition in me by 
application of the rod on return. It's even wilder. One might have expected that, but would you ever anticipate a sci-fi version of Jane Eyre? I mean, come on. It's true, though. This version stars Jenna Starborn, a nuclear technician, and Mr. Ravenbeck on a different planet that she goes to. It begins also with a funny twist on the unhappy orphan in a foreign uh, relative's house. You would think that if someone commissioned your conception, paid for your gestation, and claimed you immediately after your harvesting, she would love you with her whole heart. But you would be wrong. Aunt Ridley had had me created to fill a void in her existence, which was unexpectedly filled by others. I was quickly made not only redundant, but unwelcome. And yet there I was, in her house, under her feet, a constant reminder of how much she had paid to purchase something she no longer wanted. And finally, we have more tame versions. This is an example of a sequel to Jane Eyre. And uh, it begins kind of taking off from where Jane Eyre left. It starts, you know, in a window seat. This is familiar space for a reader of Bronte. Here in my calm light room at Thornfield Hall, I sit on a window seat writing, sometimes looking down onto the broad swath of lawn below, my pen and inkwell on a small table beside me. It is May now, and the orchard in the walled garden to my left is in bloom. Soon there will be roses. Looking up into the cloudless blue sky, I know content. I am safe again after storms. So this is kind of her reply. But of course, she's not safe because there's a whole novel and something has to go wrong, and it does. Um, Finally, I'm going to conclude my lecture tonight with the most fringy and absurd items. This here is something I found on the internet. I frequently do searches on Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte and try to delete every printed publication I can so I can find um, very odd um, cultural uses and references having to do with the text. And this is my triumph in that regard. Listen to this. You'll channel Jane Eyre on a Sunday. There were hints of Victoriana in New York, lengths of velvet and high empire waists. But in Europe, the trend was particularly chaste, and in the case of Yves Saint Laurent and Tichy, nearly religious. The showstoppers, however, were the adorned brides at Comme des Garçons, prude, certainly, but ethereally prude. What does this say about Jane Eyre? We have, on the one side, one of these women on the catwalk, almost with a death mask. Her face is covered in thick white makeup. She looks like she's going to a wedding-slash-funeral. On the other side, an image of Virginia Bruce as a paper doll pretty. How can these two women be the same person? And finally, the image of a woman reading a book. Pinkerton's sister has a whole first section dedicated to Jane Eyre and to the mad woman in the attic. My conclusion so far after having studied all of these adaptations and translations and spinoffs is that people keep coming back to Jane Eyre because it's about reading, 
because she addresses the reader openly and invites a reply. I think that there will always be people responding to this book, and I look forward to the results. Thank you. join our speaker for a reception that begins uh, as soon as the lights get turned on. We don't kill ourselves here. Yay. Learn by doing. That's us. <laughs> to the reception that begins immediately in the first floor, Alderman Library Staff Lounge.